Hello, and welcome to our Dialogue Sunday study for September 20, 2020. We are delighted, and, and uh, I'll say a little more about this, to be uh, joined by Margaret Blair Young this morning, focusing on 3rd Nephi chapters 8 to 11. Um, I'm a little emotional about this. Margaret, Margaret's mother was introduced to hospice on Friday. And uh, it's a hard time. Um, Margaret will be joining her sisters and her mother as soon as she's done here today. And I'm just uh, impressed or oh, kind of overwhelmed that she's with us. Um, a little bit of business. I am uh, Chris Kimball. I'm conducting today for the Dialogue Foundation Board. Other board members, Rebecca Deschweinitz and Michael Austin, are joining this meeting to uh, participate and, and handle the technology and keep us going. Uh, we are using our webinar format and on Zoom and running a live stream on Facebook and recording the program. We'll post the recording later today when it's available. For viewers on Zoom, there's a chat function where you can make comments, ask questions, have a discussion. We ask that you be courteous. That chat is recorded, and whatever you say will be available later. Uh, we're going to try to follow on Facebook as well, Rebecca in particular, uh, so that if there are comments there, we can introduce them or our allow participation from the Facebook stream as well as the Zoom stream. As a matter of dialogue advertising, if you will, dialogues, more than 50 years of content, articles, essays, art, poetry, is all available online at dialoguejournal.com and also at JSTOR now. These Dialogue Sunday sessions also are linked at dialoguejournal.com and available on YouTube. Making the journal and all of this programming available free and online means we rely on subscriptions and donations. And if you are enjoying any part of Dialogue, this program or any other part, please consider supporting Dialogue by subscribing, by donating. I'll include a link to dialoguejournal.com and a text number that you can use if you are interested in further information or in supporting us. Um, now, I'd like to introduce in a more formal way, Margaret Blair Young, who will be teaching today. As always, I want to remind everybody that dialogue encourages a variety of viewpoints and the views expressed are always those of the individual we do not ask, we did not ask Margaret to represent dialogue, nor to speak for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We ask for her voice, her viewpoint to enrich us. Margaret Blair Young is an American writer and president of the Congo Rising Corporation, a foundation focused on initiatives in the Democratic Republic of Congo, including film. She taught creative work, creative writing for 34 years at Brigham Young University in the United States. She has published six novels and two short story collections, as well as numerous essays. Two of her award-winning plays have been produced, as well as three documentary films she scripted and produced. 
She and the Congo Rising team were producers of the Congolo American film endeavor, Heart of Africa. And she and the team in the Congo are currently working on a film about Patrice Lumumba. Now to our program today, we will begin with music. Um, this may be a hard, hard piece to watch um, in context. Uh, we're going to hear Amazing Grace, sung by Margaret's daughter, Kyla Lifferth. The music that you'll hear was arranged by Margaret's brother, Del Blair, with four of her nieces accompanying on piano and strings. This work was produced for their mother's 85th birthday. After the music, uh, Ben Shaladi will offer an opening prayer and invocation. Ben is an honor code administrator and adjunct professor at Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah. He has a PhD in second language acquisition and teaching and has spent more than a decade working as a Spanish teacher. He holds a master's of social work from BYU and occasionally moonlights as a therapist. Ben co-hosts the podcast Questions from the Closet with his friend Charlie Bird and he is the author of a forthcoming book, A Walk in My Shoes, Questions I'm Often Asked as a Gay Latter-day Saint, which will be released by Desert Book in January, January of 2021. Um, I am not controlling the music. Michael, can I turn the microphone to you? Father in heaven, 
we're thankful for this time that we have to be together as friends, family, loved ones, and uh, disciples of Jesus Christ. We're grateful for uh, Margaret and for her preparation and for all those who have worked to uh, make this lesson uh, possible. We're also grateful for the founders of Dialogue and for the work that they have done to bring us uh, so much good literature and understanding and wisdom throughout the years. We ask you to bless uh, Margaret and her family uh, during this uh, tough time that they will experience thy grace and the power of thy atonement and that they will uh, feel love and peace. We also ask you to bless us with kindness and wisdom and judgment as we uh, approach this pandemic and, and how to respond to it and, and those around us. And we ask for you with us during this lesson that we will all be guided and inspired and uplifted by thee. And we say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I don't, don't start it now. Okay, are we ready? Yeah. Margaret, you're on. Go. Okay. <laughs> My I, Bruce is just putting up the PowerPoint. Um, good morning. We are going to go immediately into hellfire and brimstone and uh, earthquakes and fire. Third uh, Nephi eight. And the city of Zarahemla did take fire. That is uncomfortably familiar right now, isn't it? And the city of Moroni did sink into the depths of the sea, and the inhabitants thereof were drowned. And the earth was carried up upon the city of Moroniha, that in the place of the city there became a great mountain. And it came to pass that there was thick darkness on all the face of the land, insomuch that the inhabitants thereof, who had not fallen, could feel the vapor of darkness. And there could be no light because of the darkness, neither candles, neither torches, neither could there be fire kindled with their fine and exceedingly dry wood, so that there could not be any light at all. Yeah, let's see. So, uh, just like my husband's helping me move to the next slide. <laughs> the, the next slide becomes, okay, we're, we're just slight little problems here. The, the reaction, when we have something as enormous as an earthquake, volcanoes, fires, there is always some blaming, some questions of who made this happen? Uh, and that's, we are going to be getting into uh, the people deciding that it's the unrighteous among them who have, have made this happen. The people were heard to Christ saying, oh, that we had repented before this great and terrible day. And then would our brethren have been spared and they would not have been burned in that great city Zarahemla. In another, in another place, they were heard to cry and mourn saying, oh, that we had repented before this great and terrible day. And there was a voice heard among them over, could, could be heard over all the land, woe, woe, woe unto this people, woe unto the inhabitants of the whole earth, except they we shall repent. On to the next. The voice was loud enough to fill the whole earth. That is going to become an important contrast. Uh, I'm going to have my husband just read from Second Kings. Get close. Okay. This is familiar to you with uh, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains, and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake a fire, 
but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. I had my son Rob record an imaginative little piece about death coming to one of the unrighteous. So we'll start that now. Do I need to, has Michael got it? Okay, here we go. Hi, I know it's not a convenient time, but well, I'm here to destroy you. <clears throat> that makes absolutely no sense. The unrighteous people are getting their due. Oh, you've just got a case of mistaken identity. You're looking for my neighbor. Is your name Ishiel? Yes, but I'm righteous. My neighbor has tattoos and she violates some of the laws. She, she drinks coffee. Hmm, there's actually a coffee shop in heaven. Not in hell, though. I have kept track of my sins. I haven't committed a serious sin in a very long time. You mean other than lying? I don't lie. You just did, unfortunately. Let me check my assignment. Yeah, it's you. It says you think you're righteous, but... Well, I wouldn't be here to destroy you if you weren't, you know, un unrighteous. I... I'm a good person. We do have options, and some are better than others. Today's specials are first, burning with fire. It sounds bad, but it's pretty quick. We also have being covered with earth, my personal favorite. Buried alive, in other words. Uncomfortable, but fast. There's sinking with your city. Some people recommend that one. There's drowning in a flood. I don't deserve this. Let's be clear. Did you stone a prophet? No. Did you ever throw rocks at someone? Yes, but he wasn't a prophet. Sorry, but he was. I guess your discernment skills were a little off. He didn't say he was a prophet. You mean you didn't hear him? I'm afraid that's not a valid excuse. Have you made your choice yet? I recommend option two, being covered with earth. No burial expenses. It's easier on the family. So what, what we're actually talking about is interpretation. My father was a linguist, and so... Uh, translation was an enormous part of our family life growing up. He, he would take us into little tiny villages and give us a list of 50 words and tell us to go find the, find the, the translations. We were working in, in Spanish. Uh, but that has become a family thing. We tend to go into, uh, we, we tend to go into little villages where they speak dialects and other languages and figure out how to get along. So the questions we have to ask about what we've just received in 3rd Nephi 8 are, who is the interpreter? Nothing comes to us without interpretation. At the very least, we ourselves interpret it through our own brains, the way our brains function, and through our own culture, the, the way that we have been prepared to receive the words. Uh, so who is our interpret interpreter? Uh, the interpreter is not named, but we know this. And now it came to pass that according to our record, and we know our record to be true, for behold, it was a just man who did keep the record, for he truly did many miracles in the name of Jesus. And there was not any man who could do a miracle in the name of Jesus, save he were cleansed every whit from his iniquity. So only a righteous man can do miracles in Jesus' name, right? So the line between righteousness and wickedness is firm. 
And now it came to pass, if there was no mistake made by this man in the reckoning of our time, 30 and third year passed away. That's a big, if there was no mistake, right there, it acknowledges that interpreters can, can make errors. I, at this particular time in our lives, uh, in, in our family, we have, my mother has recently become pretty much nonverbal. Whereas our grandson, six month old, is fully functioning with what my father called the language acquisition device, meaning that all of the sounds that little six month old is hearing are going into his brain and he will start discerning that different sounds create different meanings. If he asks for something with particular sounds, he, he gets what, what he asked for. Uh, you learn when you're, when you're working on a different language, you learn that mon coeur is not the same as mon coeur. Uh, so you learn just the little bits of sound. And in some languages that, that I've played with, there are sounds which we do not have in, in English. Uh, so the whole idea of patience is enormous. When I've, the first time I learned a, a foreign language, uh, where I actually became fluent, was in Guatemala. And I remember being angry at everybody who could speak Spanish because it was a world that I could not enter. I had no idea, and, and they not only spoke Spanish, they spoke Achique. Uh, so it was a trying time where I had to be patient with myself and with the people. And the big what if my assumptions were wrong or lacking information or context? What if I have made the sounds that don't make the words that, that I actually want? What if the design, thinking back to the people moaning and understanding that they were probably responsible or the less righteous were responsible for the destruction. What if the design was far bigger than what I had imagined? The restoration continues. I, uh, I actually heard this for the first time from President Uchtdorf. Uh, I had gone against BYU regulations, although I didn't know I was going against regulations and invited him to come see a play we did about Jane Manning James, and he came. Uh, he, after the play, he told me about his experience in Montgomery, Alabama, where he had gone for flight training and had for the first time seen the signs white only, colored only. And he, at that time said, the restoration continues. I heard it again a couple of months later when he said it in priesthood meeting. Now it's something that we're saying for each other. I think there's a large recognition that we continue to grow, we continue to learn this is, an, this is a process that goes into the eternities. So one of the things that we do, because I'm giving the lesson, the lesson we do want to address is the priesthood restriction, because it was understood, there was an understanding that this had always been the way it was. Uh, for years, LDS church leaders believed that the discriminatory, discriminatory pronouncements about blacks, which undergirded the priesthood temple restriction, were divinely inspired. In 2000, thing, the very thing Brigham Young declared to be an eternal truth that blacks were cursed because of pain was disavowed. I'm guessing that with this audience, people are aware of the essay. What we know is that not everybody is. It's astounding that the false doctrines that were disavowed still get, still get taught. So I'm, I have uh, excised the one little paragraph that specifically disavows. You can make a postcard with it. Today, the church disavows the theories advanced in the past that black skin is a sign of divine disfavor or curse, or that it reflects unrighteous actions in a premortal life. 
that mixed race marriages are a sin or that blacks or people of any race or ethnicity are inferior, inferior in any way to anyone else. Church leaders today unequivocally condemn all racism, past and present in any form. What we, what we know is that people tend not to recognize their own racism. So part of the continuing restoration is to restore them to their right minds so that they're able to recognize when something they say or even something they think is actually reflecting inaccurate doctrine, is actually reflecting, reflecting something that has been completely disavowed. Uh, I'm turning it over to Michael Austin now because uh, I, let me just introduce the two speakers who are going to give about three minutes of their own experiences. First is Mel Hamilton. Uh, Mel was one of the Black 14 back in 1969. When I was growing up in Provo, Utah, there was a huge protest against BYU because of the priesthood restriction. Mel Hamilton and the University of Wyoming was on the football team and was one of the ones who protested. Uh, Mel is now a dear friend and a very good friend of my co-author, Darius Gray. Uh, so we, we had a little chat and Mel talked about some of what the prejudice that he had experienced growing up in the 50s and 60s and then uh, Darius also talking about it. This is an invitation for us to expand our hearts, expand our boundaries, to understand that there was real pain in, in the policies of the past. And I don't just mean LDS church policies, I mean uh, civil rights issues, the, the policies of the nation in allowing slavery to be, to be accommodated. So we'll start with Mel and then go to Darius and Michael Austin will take it. I remember as a second grader in Wilmington, North Carolina, I remember going, walking to, to school. I went to a Catholic school. So I, I uh, would walk downtown and of course there's the um, official magistrate office. And I walk through that building as a shortcut and go out the other, get out of the coal and so forth. Well, every time I walked into the building, I saw the sign that said, colored fountain, white fountain. Here I am second grade and I, I would look and I said, I've got to taste that water in the white fountain. And it must have taken me most of the year passing that white fountain and I just, I have to drink out of that white fountain. And um, of course, when I walked in, the, the office doors were open, people were walking around. So I'm looking around, making sure nobody's watching me. And sure enough, I get the gumption to taste that water. I turned that water on, sipped it, and ran out to the other end. And then I said, is that it? I, I was so disappointed. I was so disappointed. It was just like my water. I, I grew up with a strong Christian background. And everything that Mel talks about at Boys Town was what I found in the churches I attended in my youth. There was no segregation. There was no cursed person. There was no one denied by God. 
uh, we were all children of the God, the same God, and we were to act and behave as though we were related brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, it was quite a, a difference when I became a, a Latter-day Saint, and all of a sudden um, I was the cursed one. Uh, it was as though I had a double dose of leprosy, and uh, yeah, just a difference. But Carrie, coming to where you are uh, and what you mentioned, I cannot understand how today Christians of whatever denomination whatever denomination, if they claim Christ, how they can treat one another as they are, how they can view one another as they do, how they can demean and diminish someone's right to be as they do. Uh, it, it just does not compute for me. And, and I ache. Darius received a, a blessing many years ago in which he was told that the Savior had beheld him specifically from the cross. Uh, when he gave me a transcription of, of that blessing, and of course Darius is very special, but as I pondered and pondered that, uh, and go to the next one, I, I, I realized no, that is part of being a God, to comprehend everyone. That is actually what we are aiming for, where our comprehension of experience of each personality uh, takes us to, to a full comprehension. Enoch's heart swelled wide as eternity. These little children are in, in a place I work in the Congo, and I believe that the Savior comprehended the experience of each person on earth. Uh, I have a friend who's in some difficult circumstances right now, and these are the insights that he shared. The goal is empathy, and not just the average day-to-day, -day, I feel your pain kind of empathy, but what I suppose I would call cosmic empathy. The reference to Enoch's heart swelling wide as eternity suggests that our eternal selves are in some unfathomable, unfathomable way capable of what? Of entering into sympathy with the Savior's descent below all things. I found this interesting quote from John Fowles recently from Daniel Martin. I'm still, I'm still defeated by the conundrum of God, but I have the devil clear. And what's he? Not seeing whole. And the same friend says, for the greater part of my life, I have struggled with, have had serious bouts of not just depression, but despair. Deep, black, lingering despair. I always believed that despair was part of me, indivisible from my core. Recently, I've discovered that I was not seeing whole with cosmic empathy for myself and for those who came before me and haunt the history of my family, and perhaps of all families. In the same light, a, a friend of mine, Judith, shared this with me. When I was a teenager, I was very worried that I had sinned so badly that I could never be forgiven. One night, after days of worrying and prayers, I had a dream. I won't describe the dream because it is sacred to me, but I will say that I found myself inserted into a scene from the Savior's atonement. As I stood there weeping at what I beheld, 
The Savior turned his gaze to me and looked directly into my eyes. I cannot describe the love and compassion I felt encompass me at that moment. I knew then, deep within my soul, that the Savior's love was bigger than any sin I had ever committed. It was bigger than the wrong that had been done to me, bigger than any offense I was unwilling to let go of. I understood that his love could heal all wounds and every wounded soul. I learned that I could look to him to give me the love I need to forgive those that have hurt me or anyone I love. I later learned that he would share with me his love for my own son that would give me the strength and supply of love that my son needs from me in order to battle addiction and mental health problems. I learned that the Savior's atonement is a personal gift of love that not only heals me, but gives me the love and strength to, sh to share that love with others who do not know where or how to find it. So when there are natural disasters, and, and I'm, I'm going to talk specifically about earthquakes uh, a little bit later on in this, some of the reasons natural disasters or birth defects, I have a friend who's a Presbyterian minister who was born without arms and who told me that people figured that his mother had done something really terrible to have had a child be born without arms. It's very familiar with us, we, we know this paradigm. Reasons for natural disasters, birth defects, mental illness, well, there's demonic possession, divine punishment, ancestral curse, or maybe none of the above. Those are all transactional. When we get to John 9, we have these words, when the apostles see a blind man and say to the savior, master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? In other words, did he do something wrong? Or did his parents, were his ancestors sinful, and therefore he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. So when I look at 3 Nephi 8 and the people, the, being, the whole earth being filled with sounds of mourning and blaming, even, even blaming oneself for what has happened, uh, I want to question the interpretation. And later on, I believe we get a very strong message of how we hear the voice of the Lord. Richard Rohr, who has become a hero to, to many in, in these days, says the genius of Jesus' ministry is that he embraces tragedy, suffering, pain, betrayal, and death itself to bring us to God. There are no dead ends. Everything can be transmuted and everything can be used, everything. We, uh, in 2015, my mother actually had a brief experience with death. She had a bleeding ulcer and uh, she was vomiting blood. My, the, a nurse was there to take care of my father who would pass away in February of 2016 and saw what was happening to my mom and got her to the hospital. My mom was deeply confused about what had happened. And she didn't really talk to us, but when her brother, who, who she loves and who apparently she, she tells more to than she tells to us, came to visit in the hospital, and my mom said, God doesn't let righteous people have their stomachs come up. My uncle's response was, do you remember what it says in the Book of Mormon? I do not know the meaning of all things, but I know that God loveth his children. And then he asked her specifically, do you, do you feel that, that God loves you? And she, she said, yes, I, I think that right now in the very interesting situation we, we find ourselves in where she's sometimes calling her loved ones on, on the other side, um, 
I do believe that there's a that the essence of of love is becoming a part of her world and she's understanding probably even more but that the paradigm of god doesn't let something happen to right people god will save we will will save us if we just check all of the boxes has to be challenged many years ago pastor cecil or chip murray came to byu and i was invited to be one of his hosts I went to the administration building to, to meet him. And the love that this man exuded was so powerful that I immediately started crying and was really embarrassed about it. I, I just, I couldn't stop. I, I could just feel his love. And then uh, I, I just remember being frustrated that I didn't have enough Kleenex to, to take care of my tears. And then we took him to lunch uh, at, at the president's house. And after the lunch, he asked me to take him back so he could thank the cooks who had made the meal. So I took him back to the to the kitchen he, and he thanked everyone. And then I was sort of straightening things up and Pastor Murray gave a blessing to everybody that was in there, but I was in the kitchen. And I saw as they, I saw as he gave the last blessing and then they whisked him off to, to go to his next appointment. Pastor Murray, by the way, had met with President Hinckley. And uh, one of the little bits of interpretation that Darius and I got to do when we made our film, Nobody Knows the Untold Story of Black Mormons, was to include Pastor Murray's words talking about an apology President Hinckley had made for the church's racism and particularly with the first AME church, which uh, Pastor Murray was over, which was founded by uh, Biddy Smith Mason, who had been a slave of Mormon pioneers. Um, President Hinckley, in, in our film, we, we have Pastor Chip telling what President Hinckley had said to him. Well, we that seemed to summon a lot of voices from, from public affairs. And we were called into a meeting and uh, the public affairs people said, well, we didn't hear that. We didn't hear an apology. And my my response was, is it possible that you didn't hear because you're, you were trained to hear something else? and you skipped over it, you didn't hear, it wasn't a bold statement. He didn't stand up in front of everybody and say, I want to make an apology. Uh, it was something that happened privately and maybe you were not aware of. But my, what they asked me to do was to write to Pastor Murray and get, uh, get his, have him restate what he had said. And he did, he uh, sent it back to me and, and said how much he loved President Hinckley and how much he loved working with Latter-day Saint missionaries who helped better than almost anyone else when they were trying to feed the home, the, feed the hungry and take care of the homeless. Well, I, I wrote to Pastor Murray after we sent him off, uh, after his visit and said, I'm, I'm really sad because you, I saw you giving blessings to everyone, but I missed it. I missed receiving a blessing from you and I'm really struggling. I have a little boy, a, a teenage son who's going through awful, awful times and I, I feel like I'm totally failing. I feel like everything is my fault and I have no idea how to talk with him. Tell me how to talk with him. Please give me a blessing. And this is the blessing that, that he gave me and the, and the counsel. To your oldest son, dear daughter, and every time Pastor Murray has corresponded with me, he has called me dear daughter or Queen Margaret or something that makes me feel loved in his eyes. If you find a quiet moment with him and gain his permission to speak while he listens, promising to then listen while he speaks, committing not to interrupt, my dear son, 
I want to ask your forgiveness. Forgive me for whatever things I have done or failed to do that caused you such anger and anguish of spirit. Forgive me for the months and years and feeling your hostility and knowing that in some way you were responding to me, convinced that I triggered these negative feelings in you. Forgive me for not having asked forgiveness before. Forgive me for not being able to sit with you and ask about your pain. Yes, I know there are two sides to every question, but my side is not important right now. You will see a change in me from this moment on. I ask no change in you, just that you notice a change in me. I accept you just as you are. Now I shall sit and listen to you. I love you. Now we listen. Now we pray we have opened a door. Your words will go with your son to the grave. He's a child of his generation in constant rebellion against anything that fences him in with authority or discipline beyond himself. He will come to himself. Watch. Um, with my little daughter, we had some very serious postpartum depression. Marilee, who will give the closing prayers, uh, knows about this because she got us to, the, to a clinic that helped us help our daughter. Um, this is a picture that my daughter took of herself and her little baby expressing what postpartum depression was like. Uh, I don't know if you can see the tattoo on her arm, but it's there. And of course, we in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints don't get tattoos. But what if we do? Uh, when I wanted to give a back rub to my little Julie to do what I could to comfort her and had some fragrant oil. And I said, just take the shirt off, honey. And she said, oh, I have to tell you, I have a tattoo. And it was a new tattoo. It was crossed arms and then flowers. And, and I said, tell me about this. And she said, it's postpartum depression. Mom. The, the feeling of being bound with the crossed arms and then the flowers. I, I meant to ask her to send me a photo of it, but I think this one kind of expresses what she felt. And for her, the tattoo was a way of telling her story. She didn't etch it in gold plates. She had it etched on her skin. Uh, I, I've, I've thought um, with, with the taboo against tattoos, when the Amalekites said, they, they, we return again to the Amalekites for they also had a mark set upon them, yea, they set the mark upon themselves, yea, even a mark of red upon their foreheads. So that sort of provided a way to distinguish, but also to judge them. As uh, two of my children have tattoos, and that has been something for me that I want to know the stories. It's, it's not, you've really messed up. You are really hurting me by your actions, but I want to know your stories. Now I'm going to talk about destruction, earthquakes in particular. My family, my father is a linguist who was teaching Cachiquel to the missionaries in Guatemala. Uh, we all went in 1975. We, dad had a, a young man, Daniel Choc, who was his assistant, a Guatemalan Indian, a Cachiquel Indian, uh, who was called as a missionary while he was my dad's assistant. So we left in May of 1975. February 4th, 1976, there was an enormous earthquake in Guatemala. Daniel Choc was a missionary then with the missionaries that my father had trained. So we became intensely aware of what was happening there. Um, Daniel's father, Pablo Choc, lost a daughter, 
actually two children and his wife in the earthquake. They lived in adobe houses. The adobe all fell down. The, the more expensive houses did not fall. But this is what it was like. I did return to where I lived at Sun, and I could not find my old house because it actually was partially standing, but I had no landmarks. All of the landmarks were gone, and I, I couldn't see where it was. I've also been in an area that had a recent volcano. They have them in Guatemala. Uh, but in one, there was dust even a year later that, that was filling the air. So I recognize some of what uh, 3 Nephi 8 says about the, the destructions. In this case, Daniel Choc was serving in a city called Comalapa in Guatemala. And he and his companion, all the roads were destroyed. Everything that you read about in 3 Nephi 8 was, was the case. Whole worlds were gone. Mountains had build, been built up because the earth was so tremulous. Terremoto uh, is how you say that in Spanish. So Daniel and his companion walked a long, long distance to, to see what had happened to his family. There was no communication. He didn't know that he had lost his mother and he had lost two siblings. When they arrived, Pablo Choc was there and, and gave him the news that three of his family members had passed away. And Daniel, uh, after just grieving this unthinkable loss, said to his father, Papi, you, you now need to set an example. Everybody is going to say that, that because you joined the LDS church, you lost your wife and your children. You need to, you need to set an example. I've, I've got to go back to my mission. Daniel went back to Patsun, which is where I lived. And uh, at one point, they were rebuilding houses, but they had to unbuild them before they could uh, build them back up. Daniel was standing on a wall, and one of the missionaries said, hey, you guys get out of there, it's going to fall, in English. Daniel didn't speak English. The wall fell, and he was killed. Um, so all of these young people who, who we knew, who my father was training, these missionaries, lost their dear companion, this Gakchikel missionary, Daniel Tok. This is the funeral of Daniel. Uh, most, of, most of the white kids you see there were, were my father's students. My father was just, what, what's the word? Uh, almost inconsolable when, when, when we got word of Daniel's death. Uh, that was such a, such a difficult time. The design, I, I don't know. I don't know why Guatemala has earthquakes, but I know it wasn't because of somebody's unrighteousness. I know it wasn't because Pablo Choc joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Why did Daniel die? I don't, I don't know that either. But I know that it, it, it impacted everybody. Um, these young men, we had a reunion shortly before my father died, all of these young men remained so deeply bonded because their missions entirely changed. They were no longer tracting, they were just serving. It was just rebuilding houses, gathering people back together, helping them go through this terrible uh, tragedy that had happened. Now I want to go back to the voice that comes in uh, chapter 11. And it came to pass while they were thus conversing with each other, they heard a voice as if it came out of heaven. Remember, they, we had that other voice that could be heard all over the world that said, whoa, whoa, whoa unto this people, I've killed the, the unrighteous among them. Uh, this voice is different. It came out of heaven and they cast their eyes round about for they understood not the voice which they heard. 
And it was not a harsh voice, neither was it a loud voice. Nevertheless, and what, notwithstanding it being a small voice, it did pierce them that did hear to the center, insomuch that there was no part of their frame that it did not cause to quake. Yea, it did pierce them to the very soul and did cause their hearts to burn. And it came to pass that again they heard the voice and they understood it not. And again, a third time they did hear the voice and they did open their ears to hear it. And their eyes were toward the sound thereof and they did look steadfastly toward heaven from whence the sound came. And behold, the third time they did understand the voice which they heard. And we'll get to, get to the, the actual words themselves, but that the contrast to that previous voice which, which tends to be what, what we do when something bad happens. What did I do to deserve, deserve this? How could God do this to me? Um, it tends to be global, but the, the personal voice that pierces each individual comes in, in, in a very personal way. Uh, the words that come afterwards, behold my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, in whom I have glorified my name, Hear ye him. Then, of course, we have the Savior stretching forth his hands and speaking unto the people, Behold, I am Jesus Christ, whom the prophets testified shall come into the world. The Savior is wounded. He allows them to, to feel his wounds. That's part of becoming acquainted with him, to understand that he, like them, is wounded. Uh, that very personal God bears the wounds. They are continuing. There's a restoration going on in Third Nephi as well. It will culminate with a Zion society, which is described in, in Fourth Nephi. Um, we are at an interesting time of interpretation. I'm, I, I won't spend a whole lot of time here in the political situation, but I am just going to mention uh, a lot of things are being said currently that were certain voices are being brought back from the past. I, since I was born in 1955, I remember all of the, uh, the clamor over uh, anti-communism, the sorts of things that actually even ended up having a racial component. Uh, my home teachers came to my home and read a, an alleged prophecy of John Taylor that suggested that blacks would come and invade the temple, rape the women, uh, terrifying thing, and not true, but a lot of people believed it. So. President Benson in October 1961 said, no true Latter-day Saint, no true American can be a socialist or a communist or support programs leading in that direction. Upon inquiry by a politically liberal Mormon, the first presidency counselor, Hugh B. Brown, replied in November that a Mormon can be a Democrat, can be a socialist, and still be a good church member. In the 60s, we had two voices. Sometimes it would be President Benson would come to BYU and give it a devotional, and then President Brown would come and sort of respond to what had been said. We had two interpreters who were explaining things according to, to their own worldviews. Um, President Benson added that social democrats in America were in government, education, communications, and policy-making bodies. There they remain today, occupying some of the highest offices in the lands. President Brown responding said, we do not think dividing our own people, casting restrictions on our government officials, or calling everybody a communist who does not agree with the political views of certain individuals is the proper way to fight communism. He added that LDS leaders or even members should not become hysterical or take AC action, engage in discussions, and certainly should not join these anti-communist groups, with whom at least are in it for the money they can make out of it. 
uh, the, the, that whole play between President Benson and President Brown is a fascinating part of our history. Uh, right now, we, we tend to get one and not the other. And so we are asked to, to do our own interpretation. Um, I have asked Terrell and Fiona Givens to provide class comments. So I'm going to read Terrell's comment first. We, we run the risk of presentism, personal subjectivity, and finite pers perspective when we dismiss out of hand biblical de depictions we find uncomfortable. Of course, there's a lot of sinners in the hands of an angry God in the Old Testament where it appears that your sins are going to be met with a cataclysm of sins. I see a grave danger we run by doing so, C.S. Lewis wrote. But the dangers of believing in a God whom we cannot regard as evil and then in mere terrified flattery, calling him good and worshiping him is still a greater danger. The ultimate question is whether the doctrine of the goodness of God or that of the inerrancy of the scriptures is to prevail when they conflict. I think the doctrine of the goodness of God is the more certain of the two. The best question, says Terrell, we might ask ourselves is this, does what I am reading expand my heart and mind or does it harrow the mind and constrict the heart. Scriptures, he says, were compiled by a variety of prophets, many of whom had their own agendas, and all of whom operated with differing degrees of inspiration and rhetoric changes according to the needs and sensibilities of the audience. And Fiona adds a little something. In addition to Carol's great, great quote, I like one from Joseph. There are three things necessary unto salvation, to know that God exists, to know his correct character and attributes. Well, it looks like I didn't uh, put the third one down. Brigham Young stated that had the Book of Mormon been written in another century, it would have been completely different from the one we have now. As the Book of Mormon was written for a 19th century American public saturated in Calvinist theology, such language as what we read in 3 Nephi 8 is to be expected. I think we could refer to the text as bridge building, encouragement to cross over into the restored gospel which is a generous, in which is a generous and vulnerable God who would reveal himself when we had eyes to see. From Joseph Smith, when we understand the character of God and know how to come to him, he begins to unfold the heavens to us and to tell us all about it. When we are ready to come to him, he is ready to come to us. I love, first of all, that it is a beginning. I would frequently tell my children that this life is preschool. We are learning some of the very basics. The big stuff hasn't even begun. The heavens begin to unfold for us as we learn a few of the principles and prepare to move on. But the greatest principles we will learn will be those two great commandments, to love God, to love our neighbors. Um, The, the fact that mostly what I'm stressing now is just how personal the scriptures become as we're in Nephi 11. They witnessed for themselves. And just as we, we had them crying out with one accord that uh, will unto us with that we had repented. Now it Hosanna, blessed be the name of the most high God. And they did fall at the feet of Jesus, the literal feet of Jesus and did worship him. And Nephi went forth and bowed himself to the Lord and did kiss his feet. Um, we, Bruce and I and, and our team in the DR Congo uh, made a movie called Heart of Africa. We have another movie. Basically, we sculpted out the American stories, the, the American missionary story. And it, it's interestingly appropriate because it deals directly with racism, but also deals with this uh, 
construct of either the transactional or the transformational. A transactional God, a transactional religion says that you can earn your little rhinestones on your, on your bandolo. You can earn credit points with God. You will get blessings. If you live really righteously, you will get a blessing. If you don't live righteously, you will be cursed. There will be an earthquake. There will be a big storm. Your basement will get flooded. Your children will get tattooed. Um, the, the transformational is much different. So this, the setup for this scene, uh, you've got Elder Martin, played by Brandon Ray Olive, and Elder Ngandu, played by Moyindo Mpongo, are dealing with tragedies in their own lives. They've found out uh, that things have happened to loved ones that are all very difficult to understand. And uh, Elder Martin actually began his mission back when he was a teenager, made the decision to be a missionary when he was drunk and uh, took the life, a DUI, of, of a missionary on a bicycle. And he, he talks about the experience in this, in this little clip of moving from the transactional to the transformational God. Michael. The atonement? L'expiation. Do you get that? Do I get the atonement? No. I don't understand the atonement. Jesus forgave all those people who crucified him, right? Yeah. Could he be able to forgive them if they killed and or destroyed his wife, his daughter, or his mother? Could he? Yeah. I think he did. Yeah. Ngandu, he did. He paid for our sins by his blood and his sepite. I don't, I don't know what it means to pay for our sins. I, I, I don't know. I mean, it, if I'm being honest, it sounds like a cashier. How big was the lie? That'll be 10 drops of blood. Hey, do not mock. I'm not mocking. I'm just saying I don't understand. Maybe no one does entirely. But maybe, just maybe, I get it a little, just a little. Maybe that's enough. What I do know, what I believe, is that Jesus, he experienced our worst moments, our fears, our shame. If Jesus knows that, how does that change anything? It just does, Gun. It just does. There's, there's something I want to show you, okay?
There was a moment when I knew I was the worst person ever born. I saw his parents and I wanted to kill myself so that I wouldn't have to look in the mirror again. We were in the courthouse and they were asking the judge not to send me to jail. And I'm thinking, why? Why care about a worthless piece of crap like me? I had to get out of there. I said I had to go to the bathroom and they put a cop at the door. And I knelt by the toilet. First time in five years I had prayed. And I said, please, Jesus, either kill me or turn me into someone else. And he changed me into someone else. He did that. Someone else? Who? Someone who could be happy again. Someone who could smile. It's so hard to explain. I know. But it was like down in my cells. Something had changed. And every time my heart beat, it didn't say, it didn't say you killed someone. It said God loves you. God loves you as much as he loves Earl Draper. God loves you. Even a loser like you can be redeemed. You, you think I'm a loser? Talking about myself, Nga. My heart, Motema, it breaks for you. I wish I could heal you like you healed me. I do. I did not heal you. God healed you, not me. And don't you want to believe that God can heal you too? Huh? Luke, I have not slept in three nights. I want to sleep. And I want her. I want Yvette. You will sleep tonight. I promise you. For however many hours are left, you will sleep. Okay? last words that uh, Brandon Olive says, that's Lingala for my brother. Uh, Brandon, when, when we were in the Congo, Brandon actually learned quite a bit of Lingala. Our African lead, Moindo, is fluent in English, speaks very good English, but put on an accent for this, for this role. Uh, there is something about that American moving into Lingala, which of course he does, doesn't speak fluently, but the attempt to honor the, the, the relationship in, in the language that is not his native language. Uh, and of course, language always involves interpretation. So questions, who are my interpreters? Am I viewing others with a divinely generous imagination or am I reducing them into something containable, which I can dismiss with pencil? 
This especially applies to family members. Am I insisting that my son or daughter come to my vision of who they should be or that they come to themselves? Am I viewing myself with a general, gen generous imagination? Am I following those who lead me to deepen my love for the human family? Do I seek to learn even by study and also by faith? This art is by Chiloba Chiwa, who was one of the missionaries who served in the Congo. And it, I, I'm putting it with the story of, of another parent's story of me with my youngest son, who got into some fairly tr serious trouble as a teenager. And actually all of us, even if the trouble wasn't very serious, any of us who, who've been parents recognize that when one of the default emotions is that when a child has a problem, it's what did I do wrong? How, how did I, how did I uh, make it so this child is messing up? How, maybe if I had gotten him up early, maybe, you know, we, we come up with all sorts of reasons where, where we are the ones to blame. Uh, there, were, there was a point where I knew something was terribly wrong and I was praying desperately for help and had a memory that because my mother is a Groberg and the Grobergs have a cabin in Island Park, I had the right to use that cabin. And that seemed to be exactly the right place to go. So I, I booked it for four days for just my son and myself and we went up to the cabin we fished one day, uh, we just were outside another day, and late at night, my son said, I'm ready to tell you everything. And he, he told me things, and, uh, and then he said, I'll you can ask questions and I'll tell you anything you want. And I said, no, we, we don't need to go over all of it. Uh, we're moving into the future now. He uh, wanted to go tubing. There was a tube in the Groberg cabin, and so he went, on the Snake River and was gone a really long time. And because I had started having some trust issues, I started thinking, where did you go? Are, are you okay? And then I started getting really impatient. I called my husband several times. Uh, and by the way, I had a text. Somebody had sent me a text on my phone. I don't remember who it was, but the text was, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount as with wings of eagles. They shall run and not be weary and walk and not faint. I called Bruce and said, he's, he's still not back. I was starting to get uh, antsy thinking I'm, and, and frankly, a little, a little angry. And Bruce urged me to not get angry. And then I had, I, I'm going to call it some personal revelation. It came three times with the exact same words, except my spiritual thoughts don't necessarily have words, but there's a concept that comes. The first was wait, be patient. The second, this is his journey, not yours. The third, he needs to see you. The fourth, you need to be happy. How much does it matter that our children or our loved ones see that we rejoice in their presence, that, that we don't start grieving about their lives because we're blaming ourselves, but that when they see us, we are happy. That from the time this happened, which was several years ago, this has become one of the themes of my life, including as a grandmother. I, when, when I see my, my grandchildren, I, my face automatically goes into a huge smile. They always know I am happy to see them. 
we are eternal beings living out a plan which we agreed to with Jesus Christ at the center. Our primary mission is to serve, to comfort, to rescue whenever possible, and to be willing to be rescued ourselves when we get lost. The scriptures invite us into conversation. When we say, I know the Book of Mormon is true, I'm not sure exactly what people mean by that. I know the Book of Mormon has extended an invitation for me to draw nearer to, to God through the conversations I will have with the words, through wrestling with the angels that are here on this page for me to comprehend better. And Faulkner said that he, uh, he asked a Jewish professor to allow him to study part of the Old Testament. The professor agreed and asked, I'll, I'll read it as Jim, asked me to propose a course of study for the next quarter. Well, since I don't want to go too fast, why don't we just read the book of Genesis? He was amazed. Though I thought studying one book of scripture in eight weeks was a snail's pace, he thought it impossible to do that much reading in so short a time. He suggested that we read only chapter one. Since that was equally amazing to me, we compromised on as much as we can get through. He warned me that we might not get very far, and we didn't. That tradition of wrestling with the words, of reading commentaries, providing our own commentaries, tasting the words. Do they taste good? Do they fill me with light? Do they fill, fill me with love? Um, and for, for my the final slide on this PowerPoint, this is my niece, Sophie Blair. If you haven't heard of her now, you probably will because she's becoming a famous singer. Her, her songs are now known by many of the youth. Uh, my, my youngest son, the one who I told the last story about, went to a concert that Sophie did. Sophie writes her own songs. A lot of them uh, yearn for acceptance, speak of her own personal pain. Sophie did a concert at the Valor. And as she got on stage, she started singing one of the songs that had been released on whatever she uses to release her songs. And the audience started singing with her. And she stepped back and uh, started weeping. The whole idea that this audience knew her songs, this audience knew her thoughts that she had expressed in that way. In our family, prepared to say goodbye to our mother. I thought a lot about what songs are my mother's songs. Some of them are silly songs. I've asked her what her favorites are. She said, come, come, you saints is her favorite. That's a wonderful, all is well, all is well. And all manner of thing shall be well. This, uh, we as a family are in a, a tenuous time where we, where we know that we're saying goodbye. But it is a such sweet invitation for us to make any, if there's been anything that has robbed us of peace, to bridge if there has been any lack of understanding between us kids, the, the, ch the ch children of Robert and Julia Blair, or between our parents and ourselves, the opportunities extended us to go in our woundedness and be healed and to work to heal each other. Um, I know the Book of Mormon gives us a great invitation to converse with our spiritual natures, with, with the souls of others, that we can become more of a community, that, that our, our communal outreaching can extend to the divine, that as we get greater light and knowledge, that we share it abundantly with others. And say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
There. Amen. Um, Margaret, could you could you take time to discuss? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there may be a number of questions, uh, but I, uh, I mostly we hear appreciation about your sharing your story and your journey uh, with us today. Um, but one of the questions that uh, that comes up uh, started at the very beginning, as you talked about the essay that uh, says these things we have taught are not true. Uh, I'm paraphrasing. Uh, raising a question, I'm, I'm, I'm going to use that to, to say uh, there's, a, there's a desire maybe for a ranking of authority and, and the Book of Mormon is, ranks pretty high on that scale if you're trying to rank authority uh, what you're talking about today says we are um, uh, what entitled empowered that we should be involved in interpreting even the words of the Book of Mormon and I uh, could you you're shaking your head like yes that's what I'm saying uh, would you <laughs> could you expound on that a little bit I the, this idea of, of, of kind of ranking authority of figuring out what where who's 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 Who's, who's got it right, or how do we go to the highest authority to get the right answer? Uh, it's, well, I'm going to do a little bit more on, on my dad, the biblical hermeneutics, any, any hermeneutical uh, endeavors, uh, move right into what language does. The, the fact that we are given stories by the Savior. My father would retell the prodigal son and tell it differently in each culture. He would work with people in that culture, and they would tell him, in my culture, a prodigal son would do this, would do that, and then my father would retell the story, adjusting it to them. Now, they would tell it even better themselves. One of the big issues we deal with today is appropriation. Uh, do, are we, can we tell somebody else's story? Uh, yes, but better to, to have them with us, and at some point to turn it over to them. With, with what we're doing in, in Congo, it has been, let's equip them and let them tell the own, their own stories. I did the first draft of, of uh, Art of Africa, but I turned the script over to them and they interpreted it into their languages. When my father tells the prodigal son, he spends a great deal of time with the fact that the father goes after the son, that we just, we know in the scriptures that the father is outside of the, outside of the house. He's not inside waiting for the son to, come, the son to come to him. He's outside. And as my father would tell it, he, he would elaborate a little bit and say that the father would go out every day and the son heard that his father was looking for him. And he said, he still wants me? He still wants me? And, and the friend would say, oh yes, every day, Johnny, every day he seeks you. Uh, my, my, when my brother retells it, he talks about Johnny, the prodigal son, hearing steps behind him and thinking that it's probably death because he's done some bad things. And then he turns around and it's not death, it's his father ready to embrace him and guide him home. Every, every story as it's retold, and you know, of course, we're not dealing with the original languages of any, of any scripture. Every story gets retranslated every time, every time it's mentioned with different emphases. Uh, the, the scripture that I quoted, the they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, meant something far different to me when I was in my 20s than it did when I was in my 50s, uh, because I was coming at it from a perspective of, of a parent. Is that enough of an answer? 
Rebecca, so, go ahead. Yeah, um, so I want to bring up one of the things that um, is being expressed on, on both venues, fa Facebook Live and Zoom, um, is how grateful everyone is for the stories, the interpretations that you have shared um, from Pastor Murray, from Brother Darius, from Mel, from your, da your daughter, you know, whose story is, um, you know, written on her, on her skin. Um, and, it's, and it seems to me you've given us a great blessing in, in showing, you know, very personally the process that we can go through of, of building interpretations, of reinterpreting as we listen to um, others' stories, um, as we come to see each other as daughters and as brothers. Um, so, so we're all, you know, really struck by that um, and, and by the idea that, that these interpreters um, who come to us with small voices that, that speak to our soul are, are so different from the whoa, whoa, loud voices of interpretation. Um, and how do we, you know, you know, maybe a question in all this, you know, how can we, you know, reorient ourselves and, um, and allow those new interpretations, voices to, um, to shape us and to help, you know, maybe others hear some of those interpretations? My, my husband is right here, and, and I, so if you want to join the conversation, I, I just, I, I know that um, I'm, of course, thinking about our, our, our family situation, um, but I know that as we've entered into this territory, which is not familiar, this, the, my, my father died in his sleep. This has not been dying in sleep. This, this has been a quite disturbing thing, and uh, I've, I've found my intuition has been very strong. Uh, I had a very strong feeling that I needed to just hold my mother. And we, you know, we, we don't agree politically at all. Uh, there are some, some things that were hard in my growing up, as any of us could say about our parents. But that very strong impression to just get in bed and hold her is something that I realized and shared with my siblings. So I would say moment to moment, what can I do to build greater love? How can I heal something that is in disrepair? What can I do to bring the light of, of God to myself and to my children and to the world? Do you have anything? Yeah. Um, one, one thing is that I, I love the way that Margaret just turns automatically at every moment to stories, contextualizes everything in experience. Because I think um, even though, you know, abstract ideas and systematic whatever can be helpful, um, I think truth is ultimately experiential and relational. And so you know, that, that's very important. Um, just a couple of other thoughts. Uh, she mentioned at one point the idea of, of uh, doctrine that tastes good. <laughs> and Joseph Smith used that same metaphor. Uh, you, you know it is good because it tastes good. You know that honey tastes sweet, right? Uh, on the other hand, that, that does, and, and I think that's very, I think that's ultimately significant. We ultimately have to just feel our way towards uh, truth and goodness and light. 
the danger can be that um, we have all these separate individuals going off in their many directions and not sure they're all going in the right direction. Uh, what can we do to come together and to, to be as one? Um, I'll just give a couple of thoughts which are reflected in some of my Book of Mormon reading this morning. Uh, before that thought though, uh, all, all truth is going to somehow resonate with the most fundamental truths and among those are faith and hope and charity. But uh, this morning I was reading a, an, another of the many invitations in the Book of Mormon to, to come unto Christ, to come unto Christ with a broken heart and a contrite spirit and to come down in the depths of humility. I think if we do that, we're not gonna go, go wrong. Um, I think that when we have an attitude of, of enmity or, or arrogance or <laughs> irritation or you know, I'm right and they're wrong, and very, I think it's very easy in that spirit to go, to go wrong. And even if we're right, we're, we're wrong <laughs> in, in a sense. So I guess I just, that's just one way of saying that uh, we need to follow all the spirit. So. You can stay on the screen with me. <laughs> I, 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 we, may, we may be jumping around a bit here, and I feel like we should, sometimes I think we should just stop with these comments, but I'll continue with a question or two. I, one, of, one of the questions that, that is, is kind of a response to your, uh, your point, Margaret, as you move to your father talking about basically everything is a story um, and making the stories appropriate to the, or uh, true to the culture or the audience. Um, one, of the, one of the more powerful things that happens is that we get first person. We have in these scriptures, in particular, um, Jesus Christ saying, I caused, I did. And that, that first person mode of telling, I guess, is, is very strong. Then you feel like there is no um, room for, or maybe you do. I, this is a pushback, I guess. If, when it's first person, is there any room for interpretation? Is there a, still an opportunity to listen with that interpretive kind of view that you're talking about? Yes. Because it, it, the, you don't open the Book of Mormon and have the Savior talk to you. Uh, you open the Book of Mormon and there are words that have gone through many minds and many, many cultures to come to you. And you will personally interpret them. So when, when you read about Nephi kneeling and kissing the feet of Jesus Christ, you should feel that that is you. Uh, as, as far as when, when it says, I said, uh, I, I have caused Zerahemla to sink into the sea. I have... I have all of this. Um, just like any scriptures, it's, they are coming to us filtered. All of them are. I, I believe that our eternal communication, our soul-to-soul -soul communication will not involve language. I think it will in involve something beyond language. I think that uh, language is a wonderful opportunity for us to learn to interpret each other's stories, to learn to share each other's stories, but I don't think it's necessarily eternal. It's the way we have now of guiding ourselves. I have a, a question. Uh, those uh, passages you're referring to, Chris, are, 
are very difficult for, for many people. And they, they should be, I think. Um, and I, reading them recently, just felt that sort of struggle, that uh, difficulty. But I took that as a, an opportunity to really ponder and, and deal with my feelings. And uh, I'll just suggest part of what came for me was just, uh, just questions about uh, life and death and their meaning. I, uh, you know, I think part of our challenge is that we, we go through a, a sunlit world much of the time, uh, you know, pretty safe and so on, but this is a very challenging world. And what did we get ourselves into? Why were we allowed to do this or invited to do this? This is a world where terrible things happen and there's, and, and the mysteries of life and death. I'm not su suggesting that th those were, those helped me to figure it all out. I'm just saying those were some of the, the, the realities that came upon me as I was struggling with, with that chapter. And it didn't, so I'm not saying, and this is the way that we must interpret it. This is the answer. Uh, I'm just saying there was something good about facing and dealing with some of the problems. You mentioned the interpretation of the tree of life that has always fascinated me because in seminary, you're given a picture of a great and spacious building, a tree, you know, you, you learn to, A is this, the tree, the, the river, and you learn how to fill out the, the blanks. You fill, it, fill in the blanks so that you know everything from the tree of life. When Nephi asks to receive an interpretation of the dream that his father saw, he's given a vision of the savior. And then the angel says, can you fill in the blanks now for, no, the, the angel says, do you, do you understand the meaning of the tree? Yea, it is the love of God that sheddeth itself abroad upon all the hearts of the children of men. That, that testimony of love is the one thing that has got to come through. And, and what we're getting from both comments and both of you, Bruce and Margaret talking, is that uh, I, this is me paraphrasing again that there uh, that maybe the simple maybe the the obvious first impression your uh, your seminary version of the tree or of the house or of this uh, destruction is not the only story that there is another layer and another layer and more to think about and more to study. And, and as Bruce said, maybe we should be troubled, but not stop there. And uh, that's, uh, that's the lesson I'm getting both from, from your comments and from, and from comments on, in the chat um, with alternate views and, and other ways to say, for example, um, there is death and destruction and Christ is there. These are um, still his people. He is still there. Um, uh, Rebecca, I, I'm, uh, do you have more? Yeah, I think just, just along with that, um, you know, there's a number of questions that folks are posing about, and you brought up beautifully, you know, the questions maybe that we can ask from the interpretations that we get of events in the scriptures. Um, but, but there, you know, are repeated questions about when the scriptures say that God caused this uh, because of wickedness. Um, 
know, how do we think about this then? Um, what, what do we do with that? And I loved you bringing out this other scripture that said, if there was no mistake by this man, right? So, so suggesting that we can kind of step back. Um, and this, ha this has me thinking too about, again, your, your comment about, you know, what are the consequences of using the wrong interpreters? And it's got me thinking also about paying attention to the goals of different interpretations. Um, and our goals may be in using a particular interpretation and not a, another. So maybe, I don't know if you want to say something. Well, uh, yes. I love, I love it when Bruce speaks for me. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll say one thing and then I hope we'll get more Margaret. You know, um, there are a lot of scriptures, and it's not just in the Book of Mormon. That there are things in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. I could show you. You know, it seemed to talk about uh, God punishing, causing destruction to happen, and so on. So, but then sometimes when you see the fulfillment, particularly I'm thinking of some things in the Book of Mormon, it turns out the fulfillment of the destruction is, are things that people very clearly do themselves. Uh, the wicked slaying the wicked, or, or contentions coming up, or whatever. So that makes me think maybe maybe the causality is a bit different from what we imagine. Um, and I'm thinking, I've even thought about, uh, uh, you know, in in the world we live in right now, where there is strangely some uh, fairly major destruction going on in multiple kinds: hurricane, flood, fire. And plague. Um, that's interesting, you know, that all these things should come together. And we don't really feel like, uh, you know, that this is something that God is necessarily deliberately doing or that um, is caused by wickedness. And yet, um, you know, I think humans do bear some responsibility. I think there's some screwing up that happened with this whole COVID 19 thing, possibly, right? <laughs> On some people's parts. Or that denying certain uh, scientific realities have something to do with uh, fires taking place. So there is some human responsibility there. And we have a much more, I think, nuanced and complex way of talking about it. But, um, uh, you know, we live in a world where there are some very difficult things and uh, we need to not, uh, you know, misinterpret those or use them in a, in a way that would be contrary to we, we should or that God would want us to. And yet we, there is that reality of human responsibility, not only in causation, but in responding, what we do as we respond. There's a, there's a comment here that would tag on to what you just uh, observed, Bruce, that is, if you think of Christ speaking from the point of view as a creator, um, you can say, you can easily imagine uh, Christ saying, I did create a world in which there are earthquakes, in which things fall down. And in that way, even if I didn't wave a magic wand that made something happen just now, I did make a world that in which natural disasters occur. And uh, that's uh, a way to read, a way to understand a sense of responsibility. Like that. I, I think I, I, with the perspective as, of being a grandmother, being 65 years old, uh, 
I've I've morphed from punitive transformational in, in the idea of punishment. There was certainly a time where I let the world know how depressed I was because of the way my child had behaved. Uh, and I, I find that it's not just in Mormonism. I've, I've heard the idea, uh, they, they did that. They left the church to hurt their mother. Uh, but I've heard it in Judaism. In, uh, my name is Asher Lev. Chaim Fotok was asked, why would he do that to his mother? As though this, you know, it's actually about how, how you hurt your mother instead of a particular journey. And that was one reason those inspirations that I had in regards to my son, uh, you need to be happy, were a direct answer to that. There's something, you can punish a child with your unhappiness. Let that child know that they have disappointed you so terribly that you may never recover. Uh, that is not God's way. And the, the shared woundedness, so we have, so I, I kind of, having looked at history and, and frankly, the, the priesthood restriction, uh, the one report that we get years later, many years later, of Joseph Smith supposedly putting the restriction into place is by Zebedee Coltrane. I, I uh, called Zebedee Coltrane far more responsible than, than Smith. But uh, Coltrane was an old man who was very poor at the time. And my sense is that he uh, enjoyed attention. I have no idea. I, I haven't met him. I'm judging him by, by, by saying all of that. But we, his report that Joseph Smith had told him that blacks were not to have the priesthood is really what uh, brought about the restriction. And then it gets, uh, you know, he's, he's the one who, who suggests that it has been for the whole history of the church. We now know that that wasn't true. But an interpretation based on a false memory came through. Uh, who, who is telling us the story of the destruction in the Book of Mormon? How, how much later? There, I, I believe in the Mesoamerican setting for the Book of Mormon. So I know that the lands there have volcanoes and have earthquakes, and the earthquakes are devastating. And I know that human nature is clearly somebody caused this. Is it gay people? Did, did they cause this? Uh, it, it's some other person that caused these great destructions. But I, I, I like the idea of, yeah, this, this world is going to break your heart. And, and you wanted that because you understood that you would, you would grow in ways that you could not without it. Um, this world is going to break your heart is a telling line. Um, and uh, whether it's an earthquake or a mother dying or a child leaving, um, there are many ways that can happen and maybe uh, we can just appreciate your comments and, and uh, sharing yourself today. Margaret, thank you. Um, I'd, like to, I'd like to call our time and, and ask uh, a benediction by Marilee Van Wagenen. Uh, Marilee has been with us for this whole session. Uh, Mary Lee is a licensed clinical social worker employed with Wasatch Behavioral Health, has a private practice in Woodland Hills. She served on the Utah Board of the National Association of Social Workers and enjoys her children and grandchildren. And uh, Margaret asked that she be here with us to offer closing prayer. Our Father in heaven, we are indeed grateful for this rich experience we've had to worship together through the efforts of Margaret Young and her husband, Bruce, today. We're grateful for her being willing to be vulnerable and share her family stories with us and for her preparation. 
we ask a special blessing on her today that thou wilt allow her to be with her mother in righteous ways as she transitions from mortality into the spirit world. We're grateful for those who provided the technology for us today and also for the technology that brings us together far apart from each other for a sense of community on this Sabbath day. We're grateful for the atonement. We're grateful for the Book of Mormon and its witness that Jesus is the Christ. And we ask thee to bless us that we may come to ourselves and allow others to come to ourselves. We know that thou canst turn all things to our good. And we love thee and we say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Marley. Amen. Um, before we lose everybody, let me just mention that next week, September